you know, this is a very massive public health problem that's been ignored and been swept under the rug and that, that we're going to be dealing with over the next few decades. And that's that a lot of people have taken a lot of hits to the head and it's going to lead to this, this disease that's, that's ugly in midlife and then leads to, uh, gets even worse when it gets to dementia. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from very sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi from a very sunny Massachusetts, uh, just outside of Boston. I write a blog called Law Sites and also a blog called Media Law, Craig. And I write a blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, we'd like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com forward slash law, and Clio, which is a web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, today we're going to talk uh, about the National Football League and about football in general, but we're not talking about sports. We're talking about workers' compensation and medical injuries. In the state of California, Dr. Eleanor Perfetto is leading the charge in filing a workers' compensation claim on behalf of her husband, Ralph Wenzel, claiming that his dementia at age 67 is related to his career as an NFL lineman from 1966 to 1973 and that the NFL should be held liable for this. This is just one example of what's happening to players after they leave the field. There are uh, dozens and perhaps even hundreds of players who can file similar claims. Experts in the California system said that NFL teams and their insurers could be facing liability of up to $100 million and perhaps even more. Dr. Pert Fetto's crusade against the NFL has created public awareness on dementia seen in retired players. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we will focus on dementia and how it relates to football, the NFL's role in helping these players, the workers' comp issues involved, and uh, the need to create public awareness about this serious issue in the NFL and in other sports. Well, our first guest today is Christopher Nowinski. He's the president and CEO of the Sports Legacy Institute. He's a former football player at Harvard and professional wrestler. Chris suffered from undiagnosed concussions regularly throughout his career. Throughout his own efforts, he's discovered research linking multiple concussions with serious long-term neurological disorders like Alzheimer's disease, memory impairment, and depression, information that had not been made available to athletes. In addition, Chris's extensive work in the fields of concussion research and advocacy has made him a sought-after voice for awareness. He is the author of Head Games, Football's Concussion Crisis. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Joining us also on today's program is attorney Alan S. Pierce from the law offices of Alan S. Pierce and Associates uh, in Salem, Massachusetts, which is just down the road from me. Uh, Alan's practice concentrates in workers' compensation, personal injury, and social security disability law with an emphasis on the representation of plaintiffs and injured workers before the courts uh, in Massachusetts and the Department of Industrial Accidents here. 
Alan also hosts his own show on the Legal Talk Network called Workers' Comp Matters. Welcome to our program, Alan. Well, thank you very much, Bob and Craig. I'm happy to be here. Well, Chris, let's start talking about the uh, alleged dementia in retired players. Does it start with one concussion? Does it take multiple concussions? Uh, how long does it take to accumulate? And, and what's the tie-in here? Yeah, well, we a lot of questions that we don't have incredibly specific answers for. What we do know is there's a disease called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which we originally knew as dementia pugilistica or punch trunk, and we thought was restricted to boxers, that's now being diagnosed in NFL players. And at our research center at Boston University School of Medicine, uh, we have a brain bank, and we study the brains of ex-football players pathologically. We have 12 college, former college and professional football players. All 12 uh, showed various symptoms in their life of memory problems. Some progressed to dementia. Some were diagnosed as Alzheimer's. But all 12 have actually had chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Uh, they have a, a disease caused by some combination of concussions and subconcussive blows. The average football player takes a thousand hits to the head each year that don't cause concussions. The onset of symptoms is the average onset of symptoms 43, average age of death 55. Um, but essentially, we're finding out that what we thought was an early Alzheimer's disease in ex-athletes is really a disease that was caused is different from Alzheimer's and was caused by football and caused by brain trauma, uh, m much of it in sports. And so the connection here is that Eleanor Perfetto, who, uh, for disclosure, is on the board of directors of the Sports Legacy Institute, um, believes there's enough evidence now to link Ralph's, what they initially thought was early onset Alzheimer's, to actually chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which would have been a workplace injury. And we'll talk more about some of these the legal issues involved in just a moment with Alan. But but Chris, first, I, I wondered if you could just share with us your your personal experience. You played football at Harvard. You later had a career in wrestling. Uh, as I understand it, that ended with a concussion in two thousand and three. Uh, tell us tell us your story. Sure. Um, you know, I was a you know three sport athlete since the age of five, and went on to play football at Harvard. It was an all Ivy defensive tackle. Didn't have any concussion problems there. Uh, Made the leap to the uh, world wrestling entertainment after graduating um, to have a little fun, and uh, was was going along just fine until I got you know four concussions in a short period of time, none of which I rested, and uh, and it caused me five years of headaches, a uh, year and a half of really bad short-term memory, three and a half years of sleepwalking, uh, and it was really rough to get over. So along the way, once I you know realized that the doctors didn't know much nor did they tell me much. I decided to look into the medical research myself and realize that, that there was a lot that they weren't telling us that would really, you know, including that concussions can lead to long-term problems and including that resting them is key to help, you know, minimizing the damage. And that wasn't getting to athletes or parents or coaches. And so uh, I wrote head games to kind of help bring about that culture change and get the information to the athletes and the parents so that we could prevent this this brain damage that was uh, you know occurring uh, clearly at the beginning clearly occurring in, in a lot of people we didn't know how bad it was now that we're really focusing on this chronic traumatic encephalopathy we're realizing that it's far more widespread than we realize and that you know bashing your head for 20 years um, you know starting when you're a kid can really destroy your life in middle age. Well, Alan, what's the what's the medical link that uh, ties these things together? I mean it. it yeah, Chris has, has told us about his experience. Is there a particular 
issue that relates this to workers' compensation, and can we reach back in time to uh, for football players like Wenzel, who's you know in his sixties and and played in his you know twenties and thirties? Well, the way you pose that question uh, um, indicates what the what the problem is from a legal perspective. On, on the surface, if uh, a claimant can show a connection between either a specific injury uh, on the job or, in this case, on the playing field. And let, let's assume for the moment we're talking about a career-ending uh, uh, orthopedic injury, a hip, hip fracture, a leg fracture. That's relatively easy uh, to make a connection. When you deal with a condition that manifests itself uh, many years removed from uh, the last time a person played, you, first of all, have the medical issue of causal connection, that is, relating uh, a medical condition, a, an impairment, a disability, a need for treatment uh, to an injury, and if not a specific injury, certainly the law in most jurisdictions recognizes the doctrine of repetitive stress injuries. We see it all the time in simple cases like um, keyboardists who develop carpal tunnel syndrome. There's no one day they were at the keyboard, but the cumulative effect. What Chris and others who have been researching this have found, that there is a similar connection between repetitive head trauma over a course of time and the development now of, of uh, this post-traumatic encephalopathy, dementia, pugilistic dementia, however you want to label it. The legal problem is, how do you access a system of benefits uh, to compensate a victim of this type, assuming you can get the medical connection, connect those dots medically in a medical legal fashion. And um, it, it is problematic because, first of all, we have 50 states. Every state has its own workers' compensation statute, which defines who is covered, who isn't covered. And in many of those states, professional athletes are either exempt from coverage by definition or their coverage is limited only until they are outside of the contract or if the contract doesn't provide for compensation for medical or wage replacement. Um, Dr. Perfetta's claim is, is in California, and that is where the controversy is arising because California is unique of all the 50 states. Uh, they have a statute that says so long as a player has played at least one game within the state of California, regardless of whether you can show there was an injury in that game or not, California would exercise workers' compensation jurisdiction and would, would um, be, the person would be able to bring that claim. And as a result, uh, a claim is being brought in California, and there are many others that have been brought and will be brought, uh, specifically for dementia. Because if this, were happen if this were a New England Patriot player, and there have been some whose career has ended due to concussion or in later years have developed it, we would have a heck of a time in Massachusetts trying to be able to prove that claim. Uh, what, did the injuries occur in Massachusetts? Half the games obviously are on the road, and um, usually the rule is that the place where the last trauma occurred uh, would be the one responsible, and you have a 50-50 chance that that would have happened in Massachusetts if you're playing uh, you know, a, a schedule where half the games are at home and on the road. Um, so what is happening in California is shining a big spotlight on the issue and hopefully it will lead to a better recognition of the damage that is being suffered by these players and a, hopefully a financial remuneration for those who need it, and more importantly or equally importantly, a change in behavior, maybe safer products, maybe safer ways to practice, 
maybe safer rules that would prevent this, and not only just on the professional level, but this has to go back down to the Pop Warner level, the high school level, and the college level. Well, as you say, there the, the first step in this is to connect the dots between the, the, the trauma and, and the symptoms. Uh, Chris, where where are we on that? How solid is the evidence that uh, these concussions and other, other head injuries uh, in younger athletes lead to uh, these problems later in their life? Well, it's a, it's a good question and a difficult question because this is a very uh, understudied disease. In fact, um, between the time the f- disease was first described in 1928 by a medical examiner in New Jersey to 2008, over 80 years, only 52 cases of the disease were pathologically verified and studied. And the problem is we cannot diagnose this in a living person. We cannot see this toxic uh, tau protein uh, on an imaging scan or in a blood test. There's no bio marker for it. So to determine whether or not somebody has CTE and that's the cause of their symptoms is, is, is difficult. Uh, you can get to a certain level of, uh, of certainty, but the, right now there really is, isn't even an agreed upon and published diagnostic criteria. So, that's, so it is very difficult to know whether or not someone's dementia is caused by CTE or otherwise, but Part of the evidence is the fact that every NFL player in California that we're looking at, their dementia is caused by it. So it's, it's, uh, but for individual person, we also don't know when it started. Um, you know, we, the earliest we've seen it so far is an 18 year old. We've seen the beginnings of the disease. You know, it could be that it starts when you're that young if you get a, a enough trauma and just progresses as you get older. It continues to progress after you stop playing. Uh, you'll never be able to stop and point back to the day it began. Um, and so it's, it, there are a lot of complicating factors, which is why the emphasis really is on, you know, we're really ramping up how much we're studying this disease, uh, but also putting in whatever policy we can immediately for the kids and the, and the adults playing today. Because we've been, the, if you look at the brains, you realize that we've been incredibly reckless with our heads uh, for a couple generations now. What is the preventative measures that need to be put into place? I mean, I, you know, I played football in, in college and high school, and the helmets seem to be, you know, fairly well padded and, and uh, face masks and so forth. But what is it that, that needs to be done to prevent these kind of injuries? Yeah, it's um, all we, you know, we have to, to be scientific. All we really know is that brain trauma is, is bad for the brain. And so uh, it's kind of an obvious thing, but in that sense, football, you know, if you, they put sensors and helmets down and realize that football players are hitting each other a thousand times uh, a year. Uh, and so you want to take down that total number. And so, uh, you know, when people ask that, they kind of feel hopeless. Like, how do you really stop football from players from hitting each other in the head? But so at, at the first congressional hearing on this, um, I issued our 10-point plan, the Sports Legacy Institute's 10-point plan to save football, really saying we've been playing it wrong, we need to do some radical changes. And one of those things was reducing how much we hit in practice. Studies show that 75% of the brain trauma a football player gets actually happens in practice. And uh, any football player that I've talked, to, and we're talking about dozens and dozens, nobody thinks we're hitting that enough in practice. Everyone says, yes, we can probably take hitting down in practice by half or more tomorrow and not lose anything in terms of skills. We just have to kind of reinvent that. So you're talking about taking hitting down by over half and then getting rid of those really intense hits. And that's those helmet-to-helmet hits. That's the um, you know hitting a defensive player in the head type of hits. And that's being done by rule changes. That's being done by... Edu- um, 
better helmets. Uh, there's a lot of growth to be made in helmets, but the biggest thing with helmets is teaching players the rules not to hit each other in the head. And then we're talking about better diagnosis and management of the concussions that people get. Right now, we're probably at about 10% of concussions actually getting diagnosed and treated, and, and even less getting treated properly. And if we can get that up, uh, you have less brain damage, but you also probably have a lot fewer guys on the field uh, year-round. So that's, uh, there's a lot, of, it's a lot of complexity to this issue, but you really can take down trauma in football if you try. In fact, uh, Chris, you might be able to expand on this, but I've heard, I don't know if it's at the uh, ch- child's level of play or if it's elevated itself to the uh, professional level, but there's been some talk about not using helmets at all in practice. And while that may seem counterintuitive, the thinking is that if the players are learning to practice without the helmet, they will be less inclined to use their head or to have increased uh, head contact, at least during practice, and that may carry over uh, uh, to game day. Yeah, well, that's not exactly why. Um, that, 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 that conversation started um, because I proposed that at the NFL Players Association's Mackey White uh, Traumatic Brain Injury Committee. Uh, I'm on that, and, and at our meeting, our first meeting in uh, Jan- end of January, they said, what are some proposals we can put in place right now? And I pointed to a study done out of, out of North Carolina by Mahalik and Guskowitz that not only said the 75% happened in practice, but something that I'd never heard discussed publicly was that when they had these sensors and helmets, they found that the, the trauma to the brain was the same when you were doing uh, full padded practices and helmet only practices. And I knew, is it from being an ex player and everyone I've talked to, they talk about, well, you know, we'll, we'll scale down practice by just by taking off the shoulder pads, taking off, you know, the, the uh, pants. And we realized, and, I, and I, that was the data that said, no, I, you know, that's not going to help us. And I thought back to, you know, our, our old, uh, you know, Thursday practices at Harvard, and I realized, yeah, no, we, when you have a helmet on, you're still hitting in the head. So the idea of taking the helmet off was, was making sure that we couldn't hit each other in the head because it's going to hurt and it's going to bleed and, and you're going to uh, have some real problems if you do have head contact. And it was also to create situations where coaches think more innovatively about how can we practice without creating brain trauma. And you put that, it happened in hockey as well, you put that helmet on and suddenly people People have less respect for the head and didn't play. And so um, I, we, we still want people, I think it's still appropriate to tackle the same way and to kind of play in a similar fashion. But, uh, but having the helmet on there just makes you can be certain that your head will not then be involved in trauma. Of course, then we have soccer, which is uh, where there are no helmets and, and no shortage of concussions. Right. Yeah. Soccer is a very, uh, very similar concussion rate, but they have a much lower cumulative trauma issue you're not t- you're not getting a thousand shots to the head you're not you're not coming off the line of scrimmage and bashing heads and so we the, the soccer still has its own risk of cte but I'm, I'm certain it's lower than football is it an issue of speed or is it an issue of playing surface what seems to be the contributing factors heads hitting heads bodies hitting bodies or bodies hitting you know stationary objects or the ground or goalposts or it's, what's it's, the yeah, the NFL studied that, and one of the only good things to come out of the NFL studies was they identified that helmet-to-helmet hits are the real problem. It's players hitting each other um, that's, that's causing the really big hits, and so that's why rule enforcement is so important. But in terms of, um, in terms of bigger, faster, stronger, that's actually, it's, actually um, it's counterintuitive that we found out that younger players take more brain trauma than older players. And that was done by out of University of Illinois, uh, Steve Broglio. He also had sensors and helmets. The, the UNC study for college players 
found that the average uh, collision caused 22 Gs of force to the brain of a player. Or, sorry, um, yeah, 22 Gs of force. And, and so you'd think that, oh, the pros must hit harder, and the high school players hit less, and the Pop Warner kids hit even, even, even less hard. And so the problem's really at the, at the pro level. Broglio had those sensors in his high school team, and the high school kids hit with an average of 24 Gs per collision. They were taking more force to the brain. And they were surprised by that result, but then they realized when they went back to the film and talked to the players that the high school players play a different game. Uh, they they don't have they don't know as good techniques, so they use their head more. But what I remember even more from my specific playing is that you have to remember high school players have very little upper body strength, especially relative to college players. So college players can push people off them and use their hands to play. High school players, especially when I played, I I had a 160 pound bench press as a, as a junior in high school when I was you know varsity middle linebacker. I had to hit with my head if I wanted to not stop somebody's progression. And so it's just a different game. And we need to remember that the problem is really at the youth level and not the older ones. Do you see any kind of rule changes coming down the pike that prevent head-to-head hits or yeah. using your head to hit? I mean, are we going to see a different football game in the future? I don't think you'll see a different football game, but you're, you're going to see differences, including like they banned the wedge uh, in the NFL uh, you can't put four people across like you, we used to be able to on kickoff return and create these just massive collisions of two of a group of people all running into each other full speed with nothing to slow them down from 60 yards apart. That's not happening anymore. Uh, and the NCAA, I was told by a referee, is voting on that today to ban the wedge as well. So that's happening. So you're, what you're seeing are small changes that you won't necessarily pick up except for the ones that have already been banned in the NFL and, are, and are, are being flagged at the NCAA and high school level at an incredibly uh, faster, you know, increasing rate. Uh, and that's those hits to, the he- hits to the head by another player's shoulder or head. Um, and it, you see it in hockey as well, uh, especially if you're in Boston and you see uh, saw Savard get hit of the Bruins by getting uh, you know blindsided with someone's shoulder in your head. You can it's it's an easy way to knock somebody out. And when I played, I I knocked a few guys out that way myself. But you realize that um, if we all do that to each other. We're all going to end up with long-term brain damage. It's something that's easy to penalize out. You don't have to. When you're hitting someone in the head with your head, you're almost certainly doing it on purpose. Uh, when you're in the open field like that and the guy doesn't see you coming. And so those things are not, you're not going to see those anymore. You're not going to see them celebrated. You're not going to see them on highlight films. You're not going to see them on jacked up on ESPN because they're going to be flagged and guys are going to get tossed from games. Chris, what about the alignment using the three, three-point stance and, and how does that impact uh, head trauma? Coming off yeah, the line. I, no one has any data on how that impacts head trauma, and I don't know if I necessarily believe it does. Uh, you know, I've heard that thrown out by outside researchers. It's not one. It's not a proposal that I'm pushing. Um, but the theory is that if you got, start guys, um, you know, without their hands on the ground, they'll use their uh, hands more coming off the line of scrimmage and collision rather than head first. Well, gentlemen, we need to take a quick break here. When we return, we'll talk more about workers' compensation claims against the NFL and what the future holds for these players. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. 
Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We are... Joined by attorney Alan S. Pierce from the law offices of Alan S. Pierce and Associates in Salem, Massachusetts, and Christopher Nowinski, president and CEO of the Sports Legacy Institute. And Alan, I wanted to bring you uh, back into the discussion uh, to talk a little bit more about some of the legal issues here. Um, we're, we're, we've been talking about some of the workers' compensation aspects. Uh, I, I'm wondering whether uh, two things uh, really. I'm wondering first of all whether some of the players uh, who've, who've been injured might have other remedies outside the workers' compensation system, and, and secondly, I'm wondering whether more needs to be done to prevent these in the first place. I'm thinking in particular of OSHA and whether OSHA should uh, intercede here in some way. Well, I mean, the OSHA issue is obviously one of uh, federal regulatory authority, and there are a lot of uh, businesses and industries and professions that are exempt from OSHA regulation. And uh, uh, certainly this, and I'm unaware that professional sports, other than, you know, things in the arenas and and in the uh, the, the various workplaces and the practice fields might have OSHA. But in terms of the actual what happens once the whistle blows and between the the white lines of the game, uh, I don't think you've got any type of OSHA regulation, nor do I think that is particularly practical. Uh, As far as the other question in terms of liability, uh, workers' comp is, is considered a no-fault system so that if there is a workers' compensation remedy available to an injured player, the employer, which would be the team, would not be liable for civil damages or tort damages, would only be liable, or its insurer would only be liable for the uh, workers' compensation benefit. And workers' compensation benefits, by definition, are limited to a percentage of uh, lost earnings up to a, a maximum weekly amount, which is in comparison to what uh, even the the basic uh, minimum payment to a football player would be far, far less, would be a very small percentage, and would be um, for medical care. And, of course, many of the uh, uh, professional athletes are covered anyway. Uh, Workers' comp steps in when they are no longer covered by either medical insurance or have a wage continuation or wage replacement. As far as liability on either the NFL or the parent organization or a helmet manufacturer, uh, that would rest upon uh, the general civil standards of tort law, whether there was negligence involved, whether you can make the connection between the negligence and the harm, and if you can prove it within the confines of, of the burden of proof with competent scientific and medical evidence, and also establish 
you know, where and when that happened. I mean, the Hamlet litigation has already uh, been with us for a number of years, and, you know, you don't have to have high-definition TV to see those warning signs on, on, on the helmets. Those wouldn't have been there but for the fact that helmet manufacturers were sued and were forced to make the helmets more safe, and um, hopefully there are ways to make them even more safe. So uh, one of the benefits of, of civil litigation or the remedies available is not only to compensate somebody who's been harmed by the negligence of others, but equally important uh, to be a deterrent and bring to the marketplace an incentive to make uh, the working world, in this case the playing world, a safer place. What's the NFL's response been to these cases? You're, you're asking me the NFL. Well, I think the if NFL. You know, has, the answer, yeah. yeah, I mean, Chris can speak to the NFL from a medical perspective of what they're, how they have taken the research that Chris and others have done. And I think they've been, and I can uh, hopefully, Chris will agree with me. I think they have been, are in the process of being educated to this research. I'm not sure they have undertaken their own independent research to, to show how dangerous this sport might be. Um, they, well, the NFL's got an interesting history on this. Uh, they were initially extremely critical of the pathological work, uh, saying what, there was no evidence it was the same disease the boxers had, that it was, there's no way to even believe it could be linked to the trauma they suffered in football. And that, and they even published their own studies, um, saying in, in the journal neurosurgery saying that they could not find any evidence of any long-term problems caused by playing football in the NFL. Um, since then, uh, as, as the evidence has accumulated, they've changed their stance, and now they're essentially, I think they're the leaders on this issue. They're doing public service announcements for kids. They're the ones really thinking about how to change the rules. They're, they're changing, uh, pushing this down through the youth levels and through USA Football. They've, uh, they said in New York Times that they're going to help fund our research. They're not going to uh, try to compete with it. They just want to help us do it. They've actually, you know, a member of their 88 plan, which are people getting benefits for having dementia, uh, passed away, and they called us and helped coordinate brain donations. So I really think they are, you know, they've done a 180 and are, are, are trying to help figure this out. And I'd like to, you know, people out there listening to this broadcast should understand. Uh, I know a lot of people will be critical of, of lawyers like me who are in the profession of, of bringing these claims and, and achieving a monetary award for somebody who's been injured. But the implication of doing this isn't just money. The, the effect of doing this is hopefully to change behavior, cut down on injuries, cut down on devastating impact of, of these type of things, and make the, the world, and in this case, the sport, a safer place so that we don't have to have these injuries or as much of these injuries, or people who engage in this sport or any of these sports will do so with a better understanding of what those risks are and can make a more intelligent decision whether or not to participate knowing what those risks. So it isn't all about the money. How how did you reach out, gentlemen? How I think it's we've reached the point. I should uh, just summarize here. We've reached the point in in our program where it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts. So, um, Alan, let's turn to you and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information, so our listeners can uh, reach out to you if they'd like to. Well, you know, my final thought is that uh, people that uh, are, are are paid to perform a service for another that's making money off that service. Uh, that the risk of harm that may come from that service, whether it's operating a punch press, operating a lawnmower, or or throwing a pass to a wide receiver who's going to get nailed by you know a defensive uh, uh, back, uh, should be compensated if, as a result of that activity, uh, they lose their ability to work or they require medical care. 
And finding a way to share that burden in a fair and effective manner is is something that we all strive to do. And if it has to occur within the workers' comp setting, uh, then it does. And uh, you know the work that's now being done to uh, to identify uh, this type of diagnosis, these diagnoses, and finding that the origin does come from the workplace, or in this case, the playing field. Uh, does lead to the use of the workers' comp statute, which obviously wasn't designed for professional athletes. It was designed for the working man and woman who's, you know, working in a, in a physical or a, uh, you know, a, a job where there's a risk of injury. Uh, so that I applaud the, the efforts of Chris, the doctors who are doing this research, and in this case, the NFL for, for seeing this, recognizing, uh, that there is a problem and, uh, taking efforts to correct it, because that's part of what the system is designed to do. And, uh, you know, I again, I, I thank you for having me on to give my perspective, and, and I, I want to thank Chris for the work he's done and is continuing to do. Alan, how can our listeners reach you? Well, I, I'm in Salem. I'm in the, the book. It's Alan Pierce and Associates, and my website is www.alanspierce.com. Just my name, A-L-A-N-S-Pierce.com. Great. Chris? Well, first, thanks for the kind words, uh, Mr. Pierce, and thanks for the uh, uh, opportunity to talk about this. Um, I guess to wrap up, I mean, I think, that, you know, this is a very massive public health problem that's been ignored and been swept under the rug and that, that we're going to be dealing with over the next few decades, and that's that a lot of people have taken a lot of hits to the head, and it's going to lead to this this disease that's that's ugly in midlife and then leads to, it gets even worse when it gets to dementia. And so um, whatever we can do to change behaviors now is key, and then really pushing to make sure these families are, you know, there's the treatment options and that, you know, these families are taken care of. Like when we talk to a lot of wives whose husbands have dementia, and it's an awful situation to be in, especially when it starts so young that they, they haven't built up the wealth to take care of them. Uh, to reach me uh, and, and to help support this work or get the educational message out uh, to you know programs in your community, you can reach us at uh, the Sports Legacy Institute. That's sportslegacy.org, sportslegacy.org. And you can also email me through there. And to get involved in the research and to help us kind of get to this treatment and a cure, that's done at Boston University, uh, bu.edu slash cste. So thanks for having me. Great. Well, thank you very much. And Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Let me add my thanks to Alan and Chris for taking the time to be with us today. Really appreciated their contributions to the program. And uh, let me remind our listeners that our programs are also available on iTunes in the podcast library and that they can now get CLE credit for listening to our show at the West Legal Ed Center. Uh, To find that, they can go to Legal talknetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. Great. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. 
Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.